Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Monday, the 10th of February. Happy birthday to Mia Graciela Ruth. Um, as you know, every once in a while you get to do something personal on air, right? So uh, I want to talk about yesterday, tomorrow, and then today. So yesterday, um, what's the most important thing that happened yesterday? Just, think of that, just consider that for just a moment. What's the most important thing that happened yesterday? There are probably lots of layers of answer to that question. What's the most important thing that happened yesterday um, in your family, in your life, in the church where you worship, um, in your circle of friends, or in your sphere of influence? What's the most important thing that happened yesterday um, is a is different when we think about um, just how wide a circle we're talking about. So the most important thing that happened yesterday um, sort of at a cosmic level is that we worshiped the Lord, our God. We took a Sabbath. We intentionally set aside time um, to focus on the worthiness of God, to worship him, to give God his worth. That's what worship is, to turn toward God and say, you are worthy. You are worthy of um, my setting aside some time, my going to a particular place and gathering with other believers. You are worthy. You are worthy of me singing songs that I might not sing at other uh, other times. Uh, you are worthy of my sitting quietly before you with a with a bowed head, considering the gravity of my own sin and the magnitude of your grace. You are worthy. God, you are worthy. It's the most important thing that happened yesterday. Um, globally, a lot going on yesterday. There were also some Academy Awards given out last night. Maybe the least important thing that happened yesterday, like actually, like I it, I believe we have arrived at the nothing to see here point in terms of cultural relevance for these kinds of awards. So moving on from that, tomorrow uh, we're going to have the New Hampshire primary. This is pretty much what the news is going to be consumed with, this and the coronavirus um, uh, and the federal budget being released today, or at least the proposed one. So the, the, new, the new Hampshire primary, Pete Buttigieg now goes into the primary, uh, having been declared the winner in Iowa in the caucus by 0.09 percentage points. Uh, he does seem to appear to be growing in popularity and um, among polls of likely Democratic primary voters. So you might want to be looking at him as a person and then certainly looking at his ideas in terms of what he would do were he to be elected president of the United States. All right, so that brings us to today. Here we go. Today is the day the Lord has made. Today is the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Um, by tomorrow, today will be yesterday. And so let's make the most of today. I know some of you are like, I hope she's going to repeat that. By tomorrow, today will be yesterday. And so let's make the most of the day that we've been given. We're not promised tomorrow. What we can do about yesterday is very limited. Um, But you and I can intentionally live today as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
as uh, co-laborers in the kingdom of God, as ambassadors of the king amidst the kingdoms of this world. Lots of opportunities for you and I to walk our faith out today in ways that honor Jesus. So let's do that. All right, we're going to turn here in just a moment to the speech by Arthur Brooks at the National Prayer Breakfast. Uh, we're going we're gonna to ponder together some of um, some some outtakes, and we're going to talk about contempt and how you and I uh, need to live as people who love our enemies, not as people who are contemptuous toward one another. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'd like to say joining me now is Arthur Brooks. Uh, joining me now via audio tape is uh, is Arthur Brooks. He is a Washington Post columnist. He is a former American Enterprise Institute president, and he spoke um, at the National Prayer Breakfast. Uh, I would say that what he what he shared was both personal and influential in terms of the moment in which we are living together. It was theologically true. Um, and so I thought that it would be worthy of turning our attention to it today. Arthur Brooks is not a priest. He's not a minister. Um, he describes himself as a social scientist and a university professor. Um, and, and he notes that most importantly, he's a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, who taught us to love God and to love each other. Let's listen to, um, we're going to listen to a series of outtakes from the speech, and then I'm just going to reflect with you upon them. Here is Arthur Brooks. Today I'm here to talk to you about the biggest crisis facing our nation and many other nations today. It's the crisis of contempt and polarization that's tearing our societies apart. I'm gonna show you why I believe that this crisis, in this crisis resides the greatest opportunity we have ever had as people of faith to lift our nations up and to bring our people together. The biggest crisis facing our nation. If I were to ask you that question, what's the biggest crisis facing our nation? Would you come up with this kind of answer? Contempt. You might actually come up with polarization or hatred of the other or um, the way that people are have become just so grossly uh, uncivil. You might point to what happened over the weekend in, in New York City, and you may say, when we have arrived at the place as a culture where people um, feel not only free but motivated to in plain uh, in plain sight and in broad daylight walk up to a police van and shoot those who are serving us. Um, we have reached a place that Arthur Brooks calls a crisis of contempt. It's more than political polarization. It's actually this like seething disgust with one another where you just can't even look at somebody, let alone talk to them in a way that is uh, recognizes their humanity, recognizes that they are a fellow image bearer. And Arthur Brooks describes this in this piece uh, as the best opportunity that we have as people of faith to lift our nations up and bring them together. Crisis is, is opportunity. There's no question about it. And so in this crisis of contempt, are we going to people who are we going to be people who simply reflect the culture and become a part of this contemptuous 
seething nastiness? Or are we going to become people who really follow the command of Christ? Not only his example, but his command. And that is a word that's going to be really important in this conversation. His command to genuinely love our enemies. Let's listen to another um, outtake from the speech. And to start us today on this path of new thinking about the crisis of contempt and polarization, I want to turn to the words of the ultimate new thinker, history's greatest social entrepreneur, and as a Catholic, my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus. Here's what he said, as recorded in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of the Father in heaven. My friends, that is the theme of this breakfast today. Love your enemies. That's thinking differently. It changed the world starting 2,000 years ago, and it's as subversive and counterintuitive today as it was then. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, so this isn't just like idle chatter. This isn't just like a, a, I don't know, like a fortune cookie insert. This is the word of the Lord. These are, uh, this is a command of Christ. And so how do we handle this word of truth? It's imperative that as believers, we handle the word of God carefully, which means we are full of care as we approach it. Um, And so do you... Do you hold the word of God in that kind of esteem? These are the very words of God. I, that's one of my favorite um, verses in, in terms of the correspondence between uh, the Apostle Paul and the church or the Christians at Thessalonica. When he, when he says of them um, that you've received, you've received this for what it really is, not the words of men, but the very word of God. Do you receive what Jesus has said and who Jesus is and the corpus of the Old and New Testaments for what they really are, the very word of God. And if so, then so what? Like, if that's true, that changes everything. Jesus says, and I repeat here what Arthur Brooks lifted up, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's consider that. Um, let's consider that today, and consider how that should affect, must affect our conversations um, as political people and as a nation today. We got to take a brief break. We'll be right back. In the eye of the storm. When we think about the concept of contempt, the reality of contempt, we are talking about actually like disdain, the disdain that a one person might have for another, regarding the other as less than, uh, not worthy of, of the respect of a fellow human being. That, that's, that's what contempt is. It's, I mean, you, you can almost like taste contempt in your mouth. It's there's just no no reason to even look upon that other person, let alone listen to them or consider their ideas worthy of consideration. That's contempt. That's contempt. Um, on a theological level, you and I, um, when we experience that toward other people, we are 
we are also in just like open sin toward God who created that individual in his image on purpose and for a purpose. And so when we're holding other people in contempt, we're actually holding their maker in contempt. And that that should um, stop us like cold in our tracks. Um, none of us wants to be in a state of contempt toward God. Uh, this willing disobedience, this open disrespect of the God who created us and has called us and has saved us, redeemed us. And so when we talk about this this conversation, we are talking about a conversation related to our own personal faith, not just our behavior toward other people, but our very relationship with God. Um, in this next part of, of his address, Arthur Brooks starts talking about moral courage, true moral courage, because it does take moral courage today to um, to stand up for those who are held in contempt by those with whom we agree, all right? So moral courage, Arthur Brooks is going to argue, has very little to do with how you and I address those with whom we disagree. That's civility and that's important, but that's not moral courage. Moral courage is, do I stand up to the people with whom I agree on behalf of the people with whom we mutually disagree? That's really the moral courage question. Here's Arthur Brooks addressing that. How many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? I'm going to round that off to 100%. The rest of you are on your phones. Are you comfortable hearing someone on your side insult that person that you love? Make it personal, my friends. This reminds me of a lesson my father taught me about moral courage. We're always taught that we need to stand up to the people with whom we disagree. And that is a good thing to do. Look, we need a competition of ideas. This is America. But the great thing about America is there's no knock in the night and no jackbooted thug just because people disagree with us. God bless this country. We've achieved this. So moral courage is not standing up to the people with whom you disagree. Moral courage is standing up to the people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. Can you do it? Are you up for it? Why can't we do it? Why am I so bad at that? I'm not going to lie. Why aren't we doing this more? Why can't we get out of this dark place that we don't like? Why can't we get out of this dark place we don't like? Whoo. All right. So the word courage here is really important. It's one thing to have the courage of your convictions. It's another thing to have the very courage of Christ. And that's going to be my my encouragement today. Uh, moral courage comes uh, because we're with Christ. We're in Christ. We're all we are already dead. Like, right. So it, it's a Galatians 2.20 person. Right. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So what in the world are they going to do to me? Like, what could the world do that it hasn't already done to the one in whom I now find my life? Um, moral courage is not just mouthing off among uh, in, in a in a silo of agreement with people um, who already share your worldview and in eviscerating the views of people who aren't in that group. No, no. Moral courage is standing up for those with whom you disagree, for the counterpoint, in the midst of the people with whom you agree. And and I will say that um, this seems to be uh, a point at issue 
between you and I from time to time. Sometimes I will get an email or a text message and you are eviscerating me for uh, taking a position that you don't agree with. And so I just want you to pause for a moment and ask yourself, why might Carmen be doing that? Well, I might be doing it so that we all understand the complexity of the cultural conversations that we're in and that this is a conversation about ideas. And it is, it is, it ought to be the best idea that wins. And if our ideas, which we know to be true, can't stand up to scrutiny, um, then we're in serious trouble in terms of being people who winsomely advocate for the gospel in a culture that holds God in contempt. So um, we're going to uh, stick on this contempt theme for just a moment. Let's, uh, uh, Paul, let's tee up the next segment from Arthur Brooks. Again, he is speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast last week. The problem isn't anger, my friends. The problem is what psychologists call contempt. Arthur Schopenhauer, the great 19th century philosopher, said that contempt is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another human being. When you are treated with contempt, you never forget it. The world's leading uh, expert in marital reconciliation is Dr. John Gottman of the University of Washington. He's brought thousands of couples back together on their way to divorce court. He says that he can sit with a couple for one hour that he's never met, and he can predict that they will be divorced within three years with 94% accuracy. When he's looking for, of course you do, because you want to stay married. Eye-rolling, sarcasm, derision, dismissal. My friends, contempt kills marriages. Contempt kills relationships. Contempt kills love. And contempt is ripping our country apart. So how do we break the habit of contempt? Some people say we need more civility. We need more tolerance. I say nonsense. Why? Because civility and tolerance are a low standard. If I told you that my wife Esther and I are civil to each other, you'd say we need counseling. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew didn't say tolerate your enemies. He said love your enemies. Love them. Answer hatred with love. So how are you going to do it? How am I going to do it? I'm going to give you three pieces of homework. I'm a Harvard professor. I get to give homework. This is your homework and mine. First, ask God to give you the strength to do this hard thing. To go against your human nature. To follow Jesus' teaching. You believe Jesus' teaching. Act like it. Me too. To love your enemies. Second, make a commitment to somebody else to reject contempt. I mean, look, of course you're going to disagree. You need to disagree with other people. That's what makes America great is disagreement. It's the competition of ideas. That's part of democracy. That's right and good. But do it without contempt. Ask somebody to hold you accountable. And finally, go out looking for contempt. It's your opportunity for moral perfection. Why? Because when people treat you with hatred and you answer with love, you're going to change the country. It's like being a missionary, isn't it? I have missionaries on both sides of my family. And the most amazing thing about missionaries is that they're full, so full of joy in the face of rejection. You know the words that nobody's ever said before? Oh, good, there's missionaries on the porch. <laughs> Pretend we're not home. And yet, they're full of joy. 
Why? Because there's darkness and they have light and they're bringing light to darkness. Now, if you can't find contempt to be a missionary, you need a wider circle of friends. You need more people who disagree with you. You're in an echo chamber. Look, this is your opportunity to show people what leadership is all about. Run toward the darkness. Bring your light. So where might you and I run toward the darkness today with the light? Where might we actually go deployed as missionaries in this generation? Where might we ferret out contempt? And where might we be people who into that moment, into that moment, be the people who manifest love? We don't talk about love. We do speak the truth in love, but we actually manifest love. I mean, the very act of listening to another human being who is proposing ideas that are preposterous, but the very act of listening to them in a non-defensive manner and acknowledging their humanity, their worth, their value, their freedom to believe whatever they believe as absolutely completely contrary to what you believe and I believe, that's, that's an act of love. So I'm going to encourage us to, um, to take Arthur Brooks's challenge, to ask God to give us the strength to do the hard thing, to make a commitment to another person to reject contempt, to be on the lookout for contempt, um, and then to actually be people who bear light into that darkness. Let's go forth today to love our enemies in the spirit of Christ, by the command of Christ, and yeah, by the encouragement of our brother, Arthur Brooks. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we're going to try to make a little bit of sense of what's going on uh, in the nation in terms of things that I would describe as religious liberty related. We have a very interesting case in uh, in Arizona. And then I'm going to have just a wide open conversation with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College about conscience. How is your conscience formed? What What is our conscience? How does our conscience guide us? What does it mean for my conscience to be um, submitted to Christ? What does it mean for me to not only be conscious of Christ, but for Christ to be Lord of the conscience? That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. How do you handle behavioral issues with your teen when he splits his time between two homes, especially when the ex-wife or ex-husband hold completely different standards? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. How are we supposed to be good parents when it's only a part-time job? Well, for starters, be consistent with what you believe. If you're divorced and your teen moves between two households, understand that you can't control your ex. So stick with the rules, boundaries, and consequences that you believe to be right for your home. Consistency will help you be the best mom or dad for your kid, whether you're full-time or part-time. And someday, your son or daughter will thank you for sticking to it and providing the stability they desperately need. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can find him on Twitter at Carrington AM. Welcome back, sir. Hope you have recovered from last week's illness. 
yes, there's a few things ripping through the campus here. We seem to share everything, and uh, I caught one of them. That's one of one of the things my students shared with me. It's it's not the best mm. one, but it's it's one of the things. So mm, yes, I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing much better. Yes. Well, we're we're uh, Paul and I were talking off air, and we we compliment you for being willing to take one for the team. We we view this as an opportunity for your family to all b- build resistance against whatever this particular thing is. So there you go. That, that that's the hope. Everyone else is fine so far, which I'm I'm thankful for that because I I I, I wouldn't. Uh, there's a lot of talk about people's enemies and all that. I would not wish this on my on my enemy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> let's um, let's talk about this religious liberty case um out of of, of Arizona. It's a, it's a little bit different than others that we have looked at recently. So tell us what's going on here. Right, and and this is not a Supreme Court case, at least yet. It, but it, it takes place uh, in a lower court, uh, originated in the, a wildlife refuge that is along the Mexico uh, Arizona border. That's pretty sparse, uh, hard to live in for human territory. But it's used by many persons entering illegally into the U.S. trying to come from Mexico. And in fact, they've found that many have died trying to enter there due to lack of drinkable water, lack of access to food. And and what happened was a, a group of people affiliated with uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church entered uh, – and left food and water for these illegal immigrants, trying to give them some uh, a, a way of surviving if they get to that point where, where they found people that have died. They see this as part of their mission. So, so what happened is you have a conflict of laws. Uh, on one hand, uh, there are laws saying that uh, you can't be on this um, wildlife refuge without a permit. Uh, you can't go on certain restricted roads, access roads, which they all violated. Um, what they claimed and, and what they actually won in court with is to is to claim the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that most people would probably better know from the Hobby Lobby case, uh, protecting Hobby Lobby from providing abortion-inducing uh, contraception. And what that law says is you can't substantially burden someone's free exercise of religion unless you have a compelling reason, you being the government, and that means a really, really high reason, not just any reason, and that there's no way you could have done the same thing in in a less restrictive way to religion. So that's the standard. And what the judge said is, um, you know, there may be uh, compelling reasons to regulate how we step on wildlife reserves because of the environment. The environment is really important, so that's a more left-leaning often uh, position. Uh, there are really important reasons to, for immigration enforcement, a more right-leaning one, but that the government really didn't come close to meeting the burden here of uh, per, of overturning someone's religious practice. And I think, yeah, it's different in um, and, and what was done, we don't see something like this very often. We see a lot of these issues related to uh, Christians and, and questions of uh, uh, sexual orientation or other things as far as what exemptions should be given or, or abortion or things like that, but also, therefore, in who. Um, Unitarian Universalists are not considered, I'd say, the core constituency of those who have been advocating for religious liberty or claiming protections under it. And it brings up very interesting questions as to how far are we willing to fairly and equally apply these religious protections as far as what 
it applies to and importantly who it applies to even if they don't necessarily look think or or believe exactly as we do this conversation um i think is essential because the day may well come when you know i i really need for people who share my worldview to step beyond whatever the legal limit is to render me aid in a certain situation where like right and so i think that's one of the things we have to keep in mind here um we advocate for the religious liberty of those who believe or choose not to believe or choose to believe differently um because one day like the literal shoe maybe may well be on the other foot it has been historically it certainly is today in other places around the world um, and so the advocacy for religious liberty needs to be we need to be consistent in our in our application of of the advocacy of religious liberty. I think that's what I would argue in relationship to this, especially calling it religious liberty. If, if you call it religious liberty, but it only applies to those who believe and practice as you do, then really you're not arguing for religious liberty You're arguing for a, a form of religious uh, uh uh, basically enforcement, or at least uh, heavy religious preference for one and not the other. Uh, and, and, and I think in some ways that's just disingenuous, but also you're right that especially if, if we are moving toward a more secular society or a society where religion is at least not given the privileged place it had before, then I, I think people who are on the side of religion of some religious practice doesn't mean they have to agree. Doesn't mean I have to believe the Unitarian Universalists are are right in in their anti-Trinitarianism or their Universalism. But that's very different than saying I believe you have a right to practice so long as it's not doing you know some irreparable damage to society. Uh, I, I think that I, that that's consistent, and I think that's principled, and I think that's as you're saying prudent for uh, especially Christians to, to follow, given the, the stakes and the, and the situation of the country. Yeah, pretty hard if you're pro-life uh, to argue that rendering um, the basic aid of water to a thirsty person um, should rise to the level of criminal conviction in the United States of America. Like, right. So right. I, I think that's yeah, one of the places that I'd be tempted to well, go. Well, that, that that that's one of the things that came up in this that that, that is an interesting play in that debate because um, I, I think there's a good reason to say that immigration enforcement laws are important and absolutely uh, we should we shouldn't have people uh, thwarting them in some fundamental way. But what the judge pointed out is uh, in this case is uh, if you take that to its logical conclusion here, your your plan for deterrence is basically deterrence by death via starvation and malnutrition. And I, I, I think on one hand, I, the, the, the judge was saying we can combine a, a good enforcement of immigration laws with recognizing the humanity even of, of people who are breaking the law. Uh, you know, it's not like we treat other criminals in the sense of uh, your life becomes utterly forfeit without trial, without anything else, merely because you might be breaking a law. And I think that that's part of why uh, also that this 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 case came out the way it did. Yeah, I uh, this is one of those moments, Adam, when I, you know, I'm tempted to remind us that we're all sinners, um, you know, and I've read at, at some point we're all on the wrong side of 
of God's law. And then I'm also like burdened by the reality that if, if I were who I am, but I were living in a country where serving Christ was was actually illegal, I can tell you, I mean, I would be criminally prosecuted just, I mean, right? So, um, so I think that part of this is being mindful of where we live and the privileges of freedom. And part of the privilege of freedom is extending grace to other people. Um, and so thank you for, for wandering around in this particular story. It's not going away. I expect that it, that somebody is going to see fit to appeal it. So it'll probably rise again. Could um, could we take a brief break? And then when we come back, I, I would like to just roam around with you in a conversation about conscience, how a conscience is formed, what it means for um, our conscience to be uh, to be good? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of the conscience? I want to have a conscience conversation. Could we do that? I I, I, I do not conscientiously object, no. <laughs> uh, Adam Carrington and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can follow him on Twitter at CarringtonAM. Um, Professor, let's talk about conscience. What is it? How is it formed? Um, how do we judge what is a good conscience? So just wander around in this for a moment. Sure, which, of course, huge issue uh, always, but uh, I think particularly now. Uh, I, I think a way to think about what a conscience is um, is uh, uh, to think of a sort of set conviction or a set of convictions um, and 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 that they are more than intellectual assent uh, they're they're really beliefs in the heart and one and, and if you have a firm conviction one that you're willing to incur critique in and uh, uh, and in particular I think looking at the the Christian tradition um, conscience is something that is ultimately placed there by God that uh, it, it, that we have implanted into us as part of our human nature some set of some some concept and feeling uh, together of of what's right and what's wrong, uh, and 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 that that is something that in some ways grounds a lot of our moral thinking and feeling in, in the world. Now you know you ask how do we how, how does what's a good and a bad conscience. Because um, obviously people don't do the right thing a lot uh, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I, I think that the, the a good conscience is one that is rightly ordered to uh, the two, you could say, ways God reveals himself. God reveals himself uh, in the heaven. You know, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And there is something imprinted in us that uh, is is made to see and even savor that. Um, and also the the book of scripture that in some ways uh, corrects our our distortions of of that conscience and uh, really I think if you look at our fallenness we need both uh, and we need both because there's so many temptations to uh, ignore our conscience to uh, mislead our own conscience uh, to suppress it as Romans one says. And, uh, you know, I'm th speaking very theologically, but obviously this is has massive ramifications in in politics as well. 
I understand that that historically there was actually a conversation about whether or not freedom of con- uh, freedom of religion would be freedom of conscience language in uh, in the Constitution. Am I am I right about that, or did I make that up? Right. Well, in a longstanding question in in, in politics about uh, the conscience, can't can't who can bind it? Uh, mm. In other words, who can obligate your conscience one way or another uh, to to uh, compel it to think or believe something? And uh, for a long time now, the Christian tradition, you know, all, all across uh, most, if not all of it, has said uh, that Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. Um, that only God can declare to you this is what you must think and believe. And that doesn't mean that he hasn't instituted authorities like the state to bind your actions, to bind what you must do or not do, but that um, part of the, the fact that God is sovereign, that God reigns over all of creation, including the principalities and powers of this world, including magistrates of this world, is to say that he is the only one that can 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 be Lord of, of the conscience itself. He is the only one that can command belief and assent. So when I, um, when I think about uh, conscience and I think about my conscience being captive to Christ, when I think about um, Christ being Lord of the conscience, what, when, when that language is used, what should we be thinking? I, we should be thinking that uh, ultimately um, when it comes to the ultimate question of what's true, when it comes to the ultimate questions of um, what we in our hearts believe and what we in our hearts uh, follow. And, and I think that this also apply, does apply to actions, but most essentially to, to, to uh, what we believe, that um, no one is able to bind, uh, tell, uh, no one is morally allowed to tell us what to think different from what uh, the Bible and what, what, what God tells us. In other words, if, if it's God versus someone else, God has to be the one that 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 we adhere and obey. Hmm. All right, Adam. How about you and I leave it there for today? I really um, I wanted to talk about vengeance as a tool of the government, um, but we don't have time. But maybe we could that, tee that up for another conversation. And and leads well into the issue of conscience because sometimes actions of conscience will lead to vengeance and retribution unjustly. And uh, that that's something Christ promised in the world. I'm not saying everyone gets vengeance for that reason. Uh, you know, they don't always get vengeance because they're following Christ. But uh, it is a question that we are going to have to deal with in our society in a way Christians in the West have not had to deal with since pre-Constantine. Uh, and I think that's going to be something we need to think in much deeper fashion than we've had to for, for millennia. Adam Carrington, always, uh, it's always an intellectual and spiritual feast. So thank you so much for joining us. As always, you can find Adam at Hillsdale College. You can also find him on Twitter at Carrington AM. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right. So I think that these are worthy conversations for us to be having. And so let us return to the beginning of the hour where we are Uh, talking about today, today being the day the Lord has made and our rejoicing in it. What does that look like for you today? We have talked about contempt and how we are going to um, be active agents 
of God's grace in the world that he's... Yeah, I can spit that out. Uh, Active agents of grace in the world that God so loves by being people who are like literally on the lookout for contempt. When you see another person being held in contempt today, um, that's like an opportunity for you to stir up your moral courage um, and and step forward and say, um, no, we're not going to treat this person in this way. We may vehemently disagree with them. Uh, We may see them as on the wrong side of a particular issue or concern, but we are not going to treat them as less than human. We're going to give them the dignity of the freedoms that we enjoy um, as people who who recognize that people are free to think and believe whatever. Uh, And it's our obligation then as Christians to live the faith in such a way that it becomes winsome to others that they would look and say, hmm, something going on there that I find attractive uh, and that they would want to walk with us long enough to ask us some questions about what makes us the way we are. Why is our conscience different than others? Why do we love our enemies and not hold them in contempt? Um, why do we uh, generally, uh, genuinely sacrifice on behalf of others? Like, what is that about? And why is our conscience bound to Christ and not just um, what is best for us in the given moment? I encourage you today to be on the lookout for opportunities to extend the grace of God to one other person. Um, And be sure that you spend some time with the Lord today. Be in the Word of God in order that you can effectively be in the world that He so loves. Hey, if you want to share today's show with somebody else, you can go a little bit later to MyFaithRadio.com and pick up the podcast and share it with a friend. We've got a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.